Hello, welcome to Explain Me. I'm Patty Johnson. And I'm William Cutler. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Leonardo da Vinci painting that just sold for $450 million and is disputed in its authenticity. And we're also going to talk about Laura Owens and 356 Mission Road and the continuing protests of Boyle Heights. There's probably a better way to put it than I just did. Yeah, we can talk about the protesters showing up at Laura Owen's opening at the Whitney Museum, which um, I may have made a bad tweet about the fact that it reminded me of the film It Follows. (laughs) (laughs) She can't escape uh, the protest of 356 Mission in Boyle Heights. Right, which is in L.A. So, uh, But let's begin with the Leonardo da Vinci painting, which sold for $450 There's been a lot of hoo-ha in the press lately about whether this is actually a Leonardo da Vinci painting. But let's first maybe go through the kind of provenance of the of the work. So the work was first owned by King Charles I in the 17th century, but then it disappeared from records from 1763 to 1900, according to Christie's. Its history grew more complicated after it was quote-unquote extensively repainted and purchased with the belief that it was created by a follower of da Vinci. Then it resurfaced in 1958 and then got sold in 2005 for less than $10,000. Well, uh, and according to Felix Salmon, um, the last time the painting was sold uh, by an auction house was only four years ago, 2013, and it was sold privately to Yves Bouvet for $80 million. Uh, And then he turned around and flipped it to... Uh, a Russian collector named Roy Bolevlev, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name very well, for $127.5 million. And apparently, according to Felix, uh, Roy Bolevlev was furious when he found out how much Bouvet had made on it and pretty much quit collecting entirely and then sold it out of anger at this recent Christie sale. And Seems like he did okay on the deal. Yeah, I'll I'll quote Felix here. Uh, Now it seems he has made more money off one painting in four years than most art collectors dream of making in a lifetime. There's probably a moral here, but I have no idea what it is. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that. I don't know either. And I should say, if you're not subscribing to Felix's... um, I don't know if they're bi-weekly uh, notes that he sends out. This one has nine points about it. And if it just had 9.5, he could post these on the door of Christie's asking for a kind of reformation of the art world and the art market, I guess. <laughs> and that's a, a reference to 9.5 theses, right? Yes. Uh, by Ben Davies. So it's a very disputed painting right now. And I think it, over the last couple of days, just before the painting went up for sale, there was an increasing amount of noise about whether this thing was actually real. And then afterwards, there was a lot of noise about the amount that it sold for. Yeah, so I don't know if you wanted to um, talk about Jerry Saltz's take on the painting first in terms of its authenticity, because I think, I don't know if you had a problem with Jerry this week. seems like we always have <laughs> yeah. a problem with Jerry. Uh, so maybe this is the opportunity to... <laughs> Talk about uh, Mr. Saltz's um, position on this painting. Well, it, I didn't really have a problem with the Jerry Saltz's position on the painting. Basically, he thinks it's not real. And he's come to this conclusion through 
He has a number of points, but it seems like the main one that a lot of people are talking about is that it's very atypical and it's a bad painting. And so the part of the, uh, the kind of atypical nature of this particular painting is that it's the only one that's done on a straight on pose mm-hmm. and all of his other works, you know, take three quarters or, you know, they're more complicated compositions. So it seems very unlikely that later on in his career, suddenly he decided that, oh, you know what, I think I'd like to make a crappy painting. Right, and which leads a lot of people to speculate that this was just produced by an assistant or a follower of Leonardo's, you know, out of his studio, basically. Right, which would make sense. Um, and that's how it how it had been attributed previously. So what is the, the compelling argument that it actually is a painting by Leonardo da Vinci? And what, you know, allowed Christie's to kind of market it so aggressively that it was, in fact, a real da Vinci? I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure there is a compelling argument. I can tell you what the argument was, which was that there was a microscopic sampling that a teen... Through that sampling, a team had discovered the use of lapis lazuli. Lazuli, a paint color. Yeah, <laughs> it's a. It was an incredibly rare pigment that was considered the most more expensive than gold in Italy at the time. So, because it was so rare, it would really only be available to masters who were very established and could afford that kind of paint somebody like Leonardo that's not a compelling argument because that you know that that pigment could have been in his studio and used by a follower uh for a a study or you know exactly so that's not exactly a smoking gun Um, no yeah so much of the criticism of this auction was that Christie's trotted this painting out around the world to kind of show it off and build up you know the anticipation for the sale and the the record-setting number of $450 million has sort of like shocked the art world. And um, I've been enjoying a lot of the kind of soul-searching that's been happening on Twitter of people asking themselves, how could this possibly happen? As if, you know, wealth and income and inequality haven't been, you know, we've been discussing this. Yeah, there the whole time. For a long time, you know, Occupy Wall Street, you know. I mean, (laughs) there's been a whole movement around this. Uh, So for for a lot of people to suddenly come to Jesus or whatever, you know, around this and realize that the art world's kind of crazy and that really, you know, people are shocked at the fact that somebody has this much disposable income to drop on a super questionable painting. I mean... We, cut, we have these come-to-Jesus moments every six months because every six months there's another painting that shatters a record in some form or another. Like, in a lot of ways, I don't feel like this is particularly new. I mean, it seems like one of the things that's kind of new about this is that it is, uh, it is so contested. I'll say that the other, um, what they call telltale sign that this is actually a da Vinci is the use of complex and sophisticated layering which I am just quoting from somebody else. I, I don't know enough about this, but they used a powerful microscope to look at the monochromatic layers applied to the canvas and then found that the detail of that layering was consistent with da Vinci's technique in his unfinished work, The Adoration of the Magi. Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly true. I mean, some of the other gossip maybe that I was hearing on the Twitters, uh, you know, somebody was asking why this particular work was in a modern and contemporary auction, since it's an old master painting. And the joke is that, you know, it's because most of the paint's been added in the last 50 years. Oh, right. 
<laughs> so I don't know if they're carbon dating that paint or taking samples and saying, yes, this is, you know, paint from uh, 1500 or whenever it was done. Right. Well, and I mean, of course, I think the practical answer to that question is, well, they think that they would get more money if it was in um, a, an auction that has a lot of buzz already. So the modern and contemporary markets do really well and that's where a lot of the collectors with a lot of money spend their money so why wouldn't you put this newly discovered da vinci in the contemporary auction it just exposes it to more money i mean the whole thing is a marketing ploy from start to finish so that just sort of falls in line with the branding of it yeah and you know a lot of people are asking what is the value of art and in this case my my kind of perspective on this and this is just my theory is that it's really not about the value of the painting it's how valuable the collector feels about themselves this allows them to say i'm worth much more than this 450 million because i can spend this much and right. So, you know, it's interesting that they bought a painting of Jesus, you know, <laughs> when you're trying to equate how important you are, God. Uh, God, like the whole thing is so depressing. I mean, the, the other thing that I, I guess I had an issue with uh, Jerry about getting back to that was that he took issue with the legitimacy of the painting, which I think is totally real. But then what had happened um, was that uh, he got a space book done TV, so he was going to talk about it, which I actually thought was a great idea because he's very good on TV, and I think, you know, he'd be able to break these things down for pretty much anybody. But then his spot got canceled, and he called it fake news and complained that Christie's was somehow behind this, which and anybody who's had a, a spot on TV knows that things go over all the time, and suddenly, like... TV engagement you thought you had just disappears before it even started. It's just the way that broadcast media works. Yeah, I would agree with that because, I mean, I, I fundamentally think like the last time that I think Jerry, I saw him on TV was talking about George Bush painting, you know, sort of our former president and war criminal, you know, making paintings was national news, but very little about art ever makes a kind of national conversation. It took the sale of a $450 million painting to get Jerry almost on TV. And but but on the, the kind of ladder or hierarchy of important issues, you know, a $450 million painting is still not it's nothing compared to like the Senate tax bill coming up or, um, you know, anything Trump says. Pretty much. Well, I mean, to Jerry's credit, I'm sure he would find a way to sneak that stuff in there because he really can't stand what the Republicans are doing. And I feel very good that we have somebody who has like a large following who's able to kind of advocate for the things that we as artists really care about and it's not just art it extends beyond that i think he does a good job of that you know the thing that i come back to a lot though is that i, I get really frustrated that the world of criticism is almost gone like artnet has none art news has a little bit hyperallergic has some uh, art form has pretty much none if it even survives and artsy has never done any to begin with so the the space for art critics is really disappearing and jerry for better or for worse he's built himself a bulletproof vest even if he doesn't have vulture which he always would have because he brings in all this traffic he could do it on his own and he would be fine i feel like I'm holding on to him like he's the only one we got left working for us. And like every time he does something that I don't like, there's nobody else out there. I feel like these sacrifices that we make for criticism, like 
end up being so huge. In this way, like I think the use of fake news is as, as a term that just gets thrown around by Jerry a lot is really kind of it's a scary term to just throw out there and mm-hmm. use loosely. Right. And then, you know, just to kind of, I mean, it feeds into a kind of paranoia. Uh, I didn't pay attention to the story at all. I don't, you know, in, in terms of Jerry's response to being kicked off a, or cut from a TV show. It was just an offhand comment he made on Facebook. Well, you know, I mean, he, he is a fairly self-important person. I mean, I've got a joke in one of my drawings on the wall over there that the art world is really just the three stigmata of Jerry Saltz that we're just living in his idea of the art world, you know? <laughs> like, it, yeah, if Jerry dies or something, we all go away. So I, I do feel that he has an outsized importance in the art world and his perspective on what is or isn't art carries a lot of weight still. But I, I understand your kind of point that, you know, the role that the art critic does seem to be diminishing in very real terms. You know, there's just there's like very almost... few full-time critics outside of, you know, L.A. and New York. I know? mean, even if you look at, like, Ben Davis, who works at Artnet as the national art critic, like, how often does he actually get to write a review anymore? Like, you don't see it that often. Mm-hmm. Like, I think most of the time, and I mean, I don't know what Ben's job entails, like, but he's there full time, so I'd assume most of the time he's editing because he's not on the front page. That may be changing a little bit with you know the change in kind of editorial uh, control at, at Artnet. But you're right; I have not seen that much long form writing out of Ben uh, as much as I would like, certainly as well. And you know there there is a lot of competition within art writing, and I think part of the point, like you mentioned, artsy earlier. And I don't know how true this is, but there's an idea that if you buy uh, or you subscribe to Artsy, you may be guaranteed three pieces of writing about your space. And they could be small things. I don't know exactly what kind of writing. So there's that kind of pay-to-play model built in with Artsy. Which is just like art form. Uh, Yeah. I mean, people like to think that, you know, the critics are picking these uh, shows to review because they objectively like them or something, or they they want to critique them when they may just be assigned. Yeah, where they get a list of advertisers and they get to choose amongst which advertiser they want to review. Yeah, and I mean, Artsy, um, a lot of the writing, like I've literally got a list on the wall over here and they're all Artsy tweets of their headlines. And there's things like, why aren't there any great female werewolves? That was probably a Halloween inspired thing, but it's indicative of the kind of like silly questions that sort of masquerade as arts journalism for artsy. And it's just kind of right. like silly writing that all seems to be a lot of marketing. I think they're one of the tweets on the wall over there is something like artsy's goal is to demystify the art world. And that's like fast company writing about artsy. And then the, I've got a tweet right below that, that you no know, artsy saying there's a, a new billionaire every three days in, in Asia, and they're hungry for art. I don't know how much Artsy wants to democratize or demystify the art world as much as kind of cash in or, you know, find new markets for art. Right. And that's not necessarily a great space for criticism because criticism can obviously um, destroy the value of art. Yeah, well, and I mean, to be fair to the publications, like one of the reasons this shift is is happening is that people also care a lot less about criticism like pre-internet if you were to ask people what they really cared about they would always say you know oh i want to read the criticism but i think that one of the things the internet taught us is what people say and what they actually do is different so i've been writing for vice garage recently and they're not really looking for criticism they're Mm. looking for 
shorter pieces. Are they looking for human interest stories? Or they're <laughs> definitely not. You know, I think they're they're looking for things a little bit more along the lines of, you know, what traditional art publications are doing already, which is not criticism. So Art news. I mean, I guess yeah, art news, artsy, say, like tell, all tell of these things. Tell me a story, it's something related to art, but don't tell me about the art itself. It's a funny thing. I think it's a little similar to uh, food writing, where I think food critics will say that if you talk too much about the food, it gets boring to read, which right. is actually true. Like, I mean, how much do you want to read about what something feels like in your mouth? <laughs> right? Although like, we enjoy a good takedown. What was that, like, Guy Fieri restaurant takedown? The oh, absolutely. The Pete Wells did a and, great job with that. You know, it's funny. I was talking with a, a friend, another artist, um, about that very memorable takedown of, now I'm going to forget the artist's name, Amy Feldman. Oh, yeah, that R.M. Vaughn wrote, right. which was incredible. Which kind of polarized, you know. I mean, every painter I knew was like, that's so unfair. Why did they? Why did he pick out Amy Feldman? She's a really nice person. And it's like, well, I don't care he if she's a nice know. person. Yeah, that's great. But he was talking, responding to some what looked to be very boring paintings, you know. And if she's mining new terrain of boring, great. But I glanced at those, not my cup of tea. I didn't really want to, you know, talk about that. But that review stuck with people because they never get to read anything like that. Where somebody yeah, really true. just goes all in and says, this is why this is not good art. And that, you know, artsy, so many of these places are just about promotion and marketing. They're not going to create that space for a really critical voice to say that. I think the thing with R.M. Vaughn, and at least in terms of how he chose that review, uh, it was in part chosen for him. He had suggested two shows, and one of them was the Amy Feldman show, but because we had a lot of history of discussing that work in the past, I kind of wanted to get his take on it because actually the Art of City staff previously had been completely divided in terms of whether this was complete garbage work or there was actually something there. So that's how that developed. But anyway, I kind of feel like we should move along mm. to uh, the Laura Owens story. Actually, why don't we take a break? So there was a protest at the at Laura Owens opening at the Whitney Museum where activists from Boyle Heights and New York City dropped a banner um, protesting her gallery, uh, 356 Mission in Boyle Heights, which was the subject of a kind of lot of news reports and then ultimately elicited a written response from the artist that she published on 356, uh, 356 Mission's website. So do you want to explain me a little bit about Laura's response? Sure. I mean, I think probably what would be useful is to just read a few excerpts from her sure. letter. The letter is fairly long, but I think there are a few key points that give us the history. She describes what the, the project does. She talks about how it serves the artists and members of the community all free of charge. There's a mission explaining in the uh, the letter and and mostly you know she says the space has held over 300 free events including exhibitions lectures concerts readings performances talks conferences blah 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 the history though is kind of interesting to quote that 
I rented 356 as an exhibition-making experiment in 2012, as I had no gallery or forthcoming shows in LA, and I wanted to make a project in my hometown. My intention was to use the space as a studio to make a new body of work and then open it to the public after the paintings were finished so that the production and display of the work were not tied to the gallery calendar. And then she talks about how she signed a one-year lease with the sole intention of hosting free events and activities during the her exhibition 12 months, but realized while she was doing this that there was a lot of need for exhibition space. And then she talks about some more of the her earlier history. I moved to Los Angeles in 1992 and lived and worked near Mission Road. I've continued to live and work on the east side of LA for the last 25 years, throughout which time I have taught at several local universities, served on committees of various nonprofits. The area where 356 is located is zoned light industrial, and historically artists have rented spaces there long before I rented my first studio nearby in 1992. Before we leased 356 in 2012, the project was used as a storage for the owner's business, which is still the case in the adjacent buildings. Prior to that, it was storage for piano. There has never been residential housing in the light industrial zoned area. According to the current zoning, it cannot be repurposed for housing. We do not own the space. We pay market rent, nor have we any relationships with developers. Everyone who works at 356 Mission is paid a fair wage and has been offered health care, except for the founders who have never been compensated for their work of this space. So I think right here what she's doing is she's trying to make an argument that says, look, we've been, I at least have been here for a lot longer than these protests have been going on. They, they're a new thing. And we actually contribute to the economy here. We're giving people health care. We're, we're paying them fair wages. I think the other thing that, uh, that comes out in that letter that I think is important to point out is that she says that because they're a public organization, they're publicly available. That means they have an address that's available on the website, a phone number, everything else. And she said that that had made them vulnerable to anonymous insults and death threats that had been left on their voicemail, which I personally think is well beyond what any protest should should do. Well, you know, that's not what happened at the Whitney, though. To be fair, they dropped a banner and read some demands. Um, that was not a death threat, you know, and I think there's a lot of activity that happens through electronic media and with that anonymity that I don't think would happen in real life. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of he said, she said here, though, because yes. in the uh, hyperallergic report, protesters talked about how there was some physical contact by some of the people who were, I guess, Laura Owens supporters. Were they trying to throw people out, grab them? I can't remember exactly, but there was a note on the hyperallergic reporting that they weren't able to verify this via the the cell phone recording that somebody had made. And I watched maybe 15 minutes of it before I realized it was an hour and a half long. Oh, thing. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, not going to watch that. I can't. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot to kind of discuss here. When I read Laura's letter on the site, there were a couple of things, even the quote, you know, where she sort of talks about 
the reason why she she wanted the space to kind of like do her own solo show because she didn't have a gallery in LA. There's a lot of casual privilege in that statement that she just, it's almost like she lacks a kind of self-awareness. I can't rent a giant 3000 square foot, whatever, you know, the square foot of that space is to show my work in LA. A lot of artists can't do that. I think it's way more than 3000. Yeah, I, mean, I think huge. it's more like 30,000. It's when huge. I went there, it was like being in two football fields of space. And when I, when I went there in 2015, I think there was a show of like Alex Israel or they were just large scale photo paintings of like palm trees. It was not work that I would associate with a community run space. They were big kind of uh, silly paintings. And uh, I didn't get a sense that I was really in a space that was about the local community or really engaging them. It seemed to be showing and selling large scale paintings. So it's hard for me to relate with Laura when she says that she started this space um, just to show her own work because there wasn't a gallery present. you know, it's just, it's so sort of far away from the reality I think most artists experience. Like, we're, I'm struggling to pay, you know, 325 bucks for my basement studio space. The idea of running a huge industrial space um, to mount my own paintings um, seems kind of ludicrous. And I understand that sort of after a year of doing it, she wanted to keep it going because there was this kind of like maybe community access or interface. But my experience of going there wasn't, I, I, that didn't seem to be the primary thing. When I went there, it was a big showroom, like a very large showroom for big, big paintings. I think that, I mean, I haven't been to um, 365 Mission. I should correct the uh, actual square footage on the warehouse. It's 12,000. 12,000 square, square feet. feet. Yes. So, so my I sense of space, I don't even know. It's, it's so alien to be in 12,000 square feet of space. In LA, it's more common. You know, the new Hauser and Worth in L.A. is gigantic. It's like a sprawling super block. I mean, her problem as a nonprofit, that disconnect, having this huge amount of space and this space being essentially a showroom, I think that a lot of nonprofits suffer from that kind of identity crisis right now. Nonprofits that are essentially large showrooms and like what kind of work do you show the, I don't, that I mean, I kind of feel like that's a problem because there is a there's an expectation that the kind of work that you show there is stuff that's not for sale. But now it just seems like everything is for sale. That's Even, true. I just I don't know that many nonprofits that have that the problem of too much space. I mean, I think about, oh well, like artist space having to band together with a bunch of you know other dealers and. Uh, Galleries, I mean, I don't, it seems like they just opened a space with Bordolami or something. It's like uh, people are trying to find novel ways to get space in New York. Um, so so having like too much space is not a problem. Like well, that's, a, no, that's with. not really what, I guess that maybe I did not articulate the the problem that I see very well. But I, I do think like if we look at, say, artist space, the old um, exit art, art in general, like, even Smack Melon. I love those organizations, but I do think that there is an issue in trying to explain why their existence is necessary mm-hmm. in in a world where like pretty much everything gets sold anyway. And I mean the the other thing about going to 356 Mission is that down the street was Venus over LA, another gigantic space showing kind of sloppy ceramics, all work from Adam and Lindemann's collection. 
um, the kind of spaces that we're opening around 356 Mission are not community-oriented spaces. They're commercial art galleries. They're giant, and they're showing big things that are hundreds of thousands of dollars that are I mean, totally inaccessible to the community. This is, I, like, I would say that, that the, the similar space in in new york although it's much smaller you could say like white columns is sort of similar right yeah like, i mean <laughs> it's hard to even think of white columns as a non-profit at this point but you know well right ahead. but that <laughs> i guess this is my point right like yeah. there's kind of a not a lot of non-profits that are exhibiting spaces that don't look like non-profits and they don't serve a public they have a certain rhetoric that talks about how they serve the public but I, I think like well, proving that is, is I, I difficult. I mean, what, what we're saying, I think what we're talking around is the fact that most of the audience for art is other artists and they tend to be white or there are people who are interested in art and it's a class thing. It's, it's organized along racial lines. I mean, but the art world's very white. And exactly. I, I'm also troubled a little bit by like Laura's justification that she was an early pioneer. It plays right into this kind of like pioneer narrative. Like she moved to LA before other people did when it was cool. And that, that gives her some like legitimacy or credibility. I don't know if that's necessarily true. She, you know, it's like how many artists moved to Williamsburg? in the 80s and early 90s and are all displaced you know it's no longer well know. i think she's saying that look i was here before the problem started so no, could i be the problem that well that's the question is she part of the problem because so one of the things that i responded to is that um uh, an la-based writer named tracy jean rosenthal published a response to laura's letter on Facebook. And she says very clearly at the beginning of the letter that she read it. It's It was good. So good that she had to um, remind myself just what about your position rankles and settles and is wrong. And one of the points she makes is that art isn't just the canary in the coal mine, that it is, it can be a conduit for gentrification to happen. And that yeah, Laura might have been there for decades longer than, um, you know, the kind of like problem of gentrification. She's still a conduit, but right? she still can be a conduit. You know, it's not like three, five, six mission exists in a vacuum over there. You have all these other commercial galleries that are popping up and that, you know, Tracy points out that that area was redistricted as the a Boyle Heights arts district with tax exemption incentives and more flexible zoning established in 2012. So Which is very aware, common. Yeah. I mean, but this is how the city in partnership with real estate developers want to use the arts to push development in areas that may have provided jobs or, you know, maybe warehouse jobs. I don't know exactly, but, you know, we have similar pressures with the East Williamsburg IBZ, the industrial business zone. We want to keep those commercially zoned. We don't want them to become residential. We don't want them to stop providing jobs for people that aren't just low-paying retail jobs. So, uh, you know, when somebody starts putting art <laughs> on a commercial zone, it can be a gateway to really, uh, you know, suddenly the zoning gets flexible. Suddenly, maybe it could become residential. We don't know. Those things aren't, you know, written in stone. Long Island City, when they started building, building all those condos, they were calling them hotels. <laughs> until the zoning got changed that. yeah no. yeah oh suddenly seven hotels are going up in long island city why is that well oh, we are they're going I mean, to rezone and everybody hates hotels when we talk about redeveloping and we're yeah. and you're sort of anti-gentrification i think i have a better understanding of why now yeah and i mean you know i'm sympathetic to laura's position i'm i'm an artist i want to show work i want to have opportunities to show i support 
artist opening spaces. But at the same time, I when I read Tracy's letter, um, I really identified with this kind of like moment near the end of her letter when she talks about a kind of like change in her own perception. And she says, quote, in a way, I'm 356 target audience. Three years ago, I went all the time and I wanted nothing more than for you to host one of my events. Now we have a real estate developer in chief and I'm a member of the LA Tenants Union. So I think there's a sense that, you know, a lot of artists, when you have a kind of ethical or political awakening to the way in which art plays into the hands of gentrification and is used by real estate developers, you suddenly stop looking at art as like a net positive or always a good thing that needs to be defended. And, and right. I guess Tracy's letter is really like, what if Laura went into negotiations or talks with the activists and was willing to walk away? It's well, probably an unfair, unfair comparison, but when Sam Durant met with the elders in Minneapolis around his piece Scaffold, he listened to them, and it was they came to the conclusion that the piece should be destroyed. And he agreed to that, and he wasn't inflexible. He felt like it was the right thing to do. And that I, that is the question that is facing Laura to some degree. Should she walk away? And it's so... I feel it's well, really but walk walk away. Like, let's just clarify what walk away means. Mm -hmm. In this, what we're we're talking about here is: should she shut down the organization, or should she keep it keep it running? So, if she keeps it running, that is not walking away because we're not talking about walking away from the bargaining table. We're talking about she could walk away from that space potentially, right? Yes, and keep the organization going. She could, with Gavin Brown's help, um, and and by the way, Laura, I. She can't be in any financial hardship. She just had a painting sell at auction for $1.76 million, which speaks to, I don't know what the prices are for an original Laura Owens painting, but with a show at the, is it the Whitney right now? Yeah, it does seem like she falls into that category of artists that, that Kenny Schachter had yes. identified. I think she where... has plenty of money to be in a less controversial um, space that is really angering and upsetting some vocal residents of Boyle Heights. Maybe they don't speak for the entire community, which, you know, you've raised that point in other conversations that like, you know, maybe they're just the loudest people in the room and that other people could find value in 356 Mission. My feeling after being involved in the art world for many years is that most people don't know what we do. It's just like we're invisible. Um, yet, so I, I can't imagine that it's, you know, a lot of the actual community of Boyle Heights really even knows what the hell 356 mission is. Contemporary art in many ways is fairly alien to most people. It's just different. Yeah, impenetrable yeah. and also not even that interesting. Um, I mean, I guess a couple of things from my perspective. I mean, one of the things that I had thought about in in response to Tracy's letter because she had asked what would happen if you went into a negotiation w being open to leaving the space mm -hmm. and i wondered a whether that was fair to ask an artist who owns a, a business basically and has poured all this time into it to leave whether that was a good precedent to set if she leaves does it look like she was bullied out of leaving or does it look like she listened to them and said okay like, I think there has to be a lot of negotiation there. But also, like, the protesters are not her landlords. Like, 
I am not unsympathetic to the protesters because I do kind of feel like residents in that neighborhood, you know, maybe you just reach a point where you, like, you're just, you're fighting for your home. Yeah. And you don't have anything else to lose. So maybe you misrepresent the facts sometimes. Maybe you gloss over things and it doesn't matter because you want your house. That's and you fight. need I your mean, house. This is, a, this is a fight. I mean, and it should, we should be clear that Boy, the area of Boyle Heights we're talking about is not residential. There's not residential units. In, no one lives in that area. It is light industrial. Um, the people live on the literally on the other side of like the highway or the tracks. Um, and so it's clear that it's not necessarily just about housing or displacement in that way. But I do think it's... But that it may lead to that. It, it can lead to that. And, you know, it's the encroachment and the kind of pushing of... of it's happening all over Los Angeles. It's not just happening in Boyle Heights. You know, there's, um, there's a lot of artists moving to L.A. Um, it's symptomatic of a lot of people moving there because it's a little bit cheaper. You can get more space. Um, people are tired of New York. New York, it's like we've already lost the battle. You know, we've lost our will to kind of fight. Um and so people are just saying, fuck it, I'm going to go to L.A. And I, you know, just I was or I'll in LA go to briefly. Chicago, I'll yeah. go to Dallas or wherever it is. Have, Chicago doesn't have the buzz. L.A. has this kind of thing. You know, it's got enough money. It's got a sense that there's um, enough gallerists opening spaces that it's a place to go. It's a real destination for artists in, in a way that I haven't seen before. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, I just I, I I was in L.A. to do a site visit for a show um, at Charlie James in Chinatown, um, which I'm surprised there hasn't been any outcry about that space. You know, no one's been upset about the galleries in Chinatown. Well, but w when don't I was speak there, too soon now that we're talking about it. <laughs> when I was uh, when I was there, I met, you know, a young painter from the School of Art Institute, Chicago, who had moved there with, along with a lot of other SAIC painters. And he was just telling me that, you know, he had gone to a show um, at a place called like Dalton's Factory and there were protesters there insulting and, you know, jeering at and kind of like ridiculing the artists going in and even artists of color, other people of color that were going into the space were all targeted just for participating in this. And so it seems like the, the activists' methods in Boyle Heights are... It, it wasn't shocking that they showed up at Laura's opening. They're taking this into the art world and they're taking the fight to the art world in a lot of different locations, a lot of different places. And the people who feel offended are not residents. They're people that have moved there. I mean, there are technically residents now, but they're new residents, you know, they're transplants. And it hurts. But, you know, I'd come back to Tracy's letter because I understand that if Laura left her space, the landlords would still own that building and they could do whatever with it. And maybe uh, an awful retailer comes in or something like something worse than Laura Owens could take over that space. At the same time, Tracy points out that the art world is the place of symbolic gestures and that if Laura walked away from that space and reopened her organization elsewhere, it, it may not change materially the situation in Boyle Heights, but it would be a hugely symbolic gesture to see the kind of art world in retreat for the first time. I rarely see, we, we just see it either, either the narrative is the middle is struggling and the galleries are closing down because collectors aren't buying, or I, I, this is the first time though that I've seen like a gallery potentially get pushed out of a neighborhood by local activists who are like, we've had enough of this and we're taking on water from both sides. Rich people aren't 
buying enough artwork and activists are saying, get out of our neighborhoods. We don't want this thing that only rich people can afford. Right. And it just, it's, I, I feel defensive of artist positions um, sometimes, but then I'm also deeply sympathetic to the activists because I just, it's hard to see art as being worth defending all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. I mean, I think Tracy Rosenthal's letter was, was really great. It does have some of the same problems that I think that we we see in Laura Owen's letter in the exchange of the protest where with the, the protesters, anytime the protesters respond, they're really nasty. Tracy is not nasty, but there's a kind of request for dialogue while simultaneously dismissing the other person's position or not dismissing, but like kind of saying things that I think will make sure that the other person doesn't listen. Well, like, I think if you say that your position is wrong, anything after that is harder for the person who is receiving that message to hear it. I do understand that. I mean, I think on one hand, there's a lot going on here. I mean, part of this is it's like asking revolutionaries to be polite. You know, if we're talking about people that are at a position where they're willing to say, fuck the social contract, etiquette, being polite, follow, you know, uh, taking into account people's feelings may get <laughs> pushed to the side. <laughs> and rightly so, if we're talking yeah, about people yeah. feeling like their survival is at stake or their their second class citizens uh, yeah, their, but look their at values like, don't matter. Look at where the alternative has gotten us, the death threats. It's not just about being polite. It's like if you say you want dialogue, you have to actually put a chip in there. I know, there. but I think that, you know, for me, a lot of that is internet bullshit, you know. It's like it terrible behavior that's enabled by the internet. Uh, what I'm more interested in is how the interactions between protesters in the physical space when it's real social relationships playing out. I, you know, I understand the death threats are troubling and I would feel terrible if I were receiving those. I would be worried about my safety. I hope nothing bad happens. But if I'm Laura, I, I have to start thinking about that. Like, do I want to stay in a place where the things are getting so desperate? What am I fighting for? What am I willing to risk my life for? A place to show large-scale paintings? I don't know if that's the... It's not like I, it's it a It really a makes me sad that that's what it comes to. Like well, we're, we're at that point. This is, you know, we're, we're in an age where we've got the $450 million fucking terrible Leonardo da Vinci painting selling to rich people. And we're facing cuts to, like, I can't even discuss the Senate and House tax bill right now. They're I know. They're so insane that I, we're at a position where a lot of things are new. A lot of new things are happening in ways that we don't have stories for, that we've not experienced in our lifetime. And it's scary. And so, you know, I think this Laura Owens thing is a lot bigger than what it really is. You know, it's about oh, absolutely, things, you know, and, absolutely. Um, and that's why, as a site of like symbolic struggle, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And I want and hope that artists will have a dialogue with activists in their community. And it's happening differently in New York. I just, I, I mean, I artists really... are working with activists to create like the People's Cultural Plan. There's a lot of good dialogue happening. But that comes out of people engaging and doing hard work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's like, to me, that seems like a discussion. What kind of symbolic act is it if we say, you know, you're right. I don't need death threats. I'll I'll retreat. I can open a space in Hollywood. In fact, there's an but abandoned I gallery. I mean, I think it's... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm, I put it badly, but I, 
there's something about responding to death threats in that way that makes it seem like it's okay to do that because you're right a bunch of expensive paintings are not worth suffering through death threats yeah. but they weren't worth the death threats in the first place well, like this is just insane like we that's crazy this is i i it's really important i think to kind of like talk about this for a second because what we're talking about are radicals people on the edges the margins of our middle class or whatever we want to kind of describe it as but that is precisely what sort of like under threat in our society right now is that we we may not have this imaginary middle class that is the silent majority experiencing great life you know and that the we're getting closer to the radical positions being the only positions because we're not going to have the safety and security and society that had for the last 50 or 60 years that seems to be going away and under threat and so either we have to start understanding you know the kind of nature of the demands or figure out what exactly the problems are that income wealth and income inequality have exacerbated because i just i can't it's it's harder to continue to identify with this kind of like middle class position where we must be pragmatic um, we must be even keeled. We must respect everyone's wishes so that we can uh, arrive at like a mutually agreeable position. Look, because I'm that telling usually starts you, with the person in power. I'm telling that. you, I'm holding it on to that because the alternative, like the world we live in is not one I want to be in. I mean, and uh, that's how uh, I feel right now. <laughs> I mean, I understand what you're saying and I hear it. I don't even disagree with it. I just want the world we had two years ago, which was shitty too. It was the world that got us this one, mm -hmm. but like it seems somehow just infinitely less scary. That is true. I think we should end the discussion <laughs> <laughs> for our own sanity and that of our listeners, you know, and maybe... Um, wanted to make a couple of observations before we segue into the reviews of the shows. I know that I ended up talking about four shows for this week's reviews, but there was one show that I wanted to mention that I left out of my, I didn't make the recommendation. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, I went and saw a couple of shows a few weeks ago um, in Bushwick and the four shows that I ended up talking about, I thought had a kind of, stylistic um, connection. I thought there were some things that linked them together, including the fact that I thought it was uh, shows by four women. <laughs> and it turns out one of them was uh, by a man. But there was one show that I think is worth mentioning. And it's a solo show by a Haitian artist named Didier Williams. And I apologize if I mispronounce uh, Didier's uh, first name. But the show is called We Will Win. And it's a uh, Tiger Strikes Asteroid. And I'm not going to spend any time really talking about it. It's, I thought it was a really beautiful show. And I had not seen the artist's work before. But it just didn't seem to relate to the other shows that I wanted to talk about. And so I kind of left it off my list. But uh, you can read about it. Um, Paul D'Agostino, um, who's an arts writer and also runs uh, Chent Oto, maybe I'm butchering that as well, um, an artist-run space in Bushwick. And he's written a sort of excellent review of the show on Hyperallergic that you can find it there. And I know that there was a show that you... <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> since we're mention. tagging on reviews, I saw a show when I was in Austin last week, which was part of their Studio Tour East program, which runs this weekend, which is, what is the date today? Uh, the 19th. So this is the last day it's going to be up. But uh, it was by a collective called the uh, Museum of Human Achievement. 
and the Museum of Human Achievement had assembled something akin to like a nine mini putt course. But if you could imagine it not being holes, but like different obstacle courses and challenges. So you'd go in there in groups of four. So you'd, you'd have a teammate and you'd have two other people mm. on the opposing team and you'd go through and you'd do these different challenges and the challenges were all designed by different artists so for one we had to hula hoop while drawing a picture of our opponents hula hooping for another this was one of my favorites you had to pull a guy on a chair across the floor and you had a, a choice of different resistance ropes so you could have 40, 60, or 100 pounds, and he would take an art pose. So, you know, he might take like the thinker <laughs> or like the pieta, and you'd pull him with your less dominant hand, which I just thought was genius because, of course, any athletic event, they'd never have your less dominant hand be part of anything. But my favorite was the last hole. The last hole is these two giant babies. They're like wall size with these giant gaping mouths. The babies, it turns out, are Trump babies. Oh. And they're constantly shitting. Oh. So they're shitting these like, <laughs> they're shitting these little Nerf balls. And your job is to throw as many of these Nerf balls into the baby's mouths. And they just sort of automatically shit them back out. And you just do this, like throwing turds in their mouth till finally the buzzer goes and whoever gets the most in the mouth wins. That sounds like an exact visualization of whenever anything terrible happens, like the Dakota pipeline just leaked 200,000 gallons of oil. And, you know, there, there was a Trump tweet for that. The shit that he had said years ago was like, oh, there's no downside to this. Well, yes, there's a fucking downside, asshole. And now we have <laughs> yeah. to throw that shit back into our diaper and chief's, you know, like mouth. It's really that is exactly. So gross. Well, that sounds like an amazing. It project. was. It was really like one of the best things I'd participated in in and that, years. That's honestly, that's such a different proposition for art or something that calls itself art, right? Than like. I'm not a huge fan of Laura Owen's paintings. They're cerebral, analytic, and you don't get to throw a Nerf ball of shit back into a baby Trump's mouth. I mean, uh, exactly. Contemporary art is an elastic term, and I think the world needs more of what you experienced than maybe one more cut and paste drop shadow painting effect. Because there's legions of kids in art schools making those things, and they're all moving to LA, and they want to be famous painters. And <laughs> Well, I think with that, it's a good time to close off. Yes. Um, uh, let me just clarify. Um, apologies to Myung-Soo Kim, whose work I discuss in the review section. Uh, Myung-Soo is a male uh, South Korean artist. And if I refer to Myung-Soo as a female in the podcast, I apologize. Explain Me is supported by Howl Arts. Join Howl Arts INC for a free affordable housing seminar led by the experts at the Actors Fund. Get organized and be prepared to take advantage of opportunities to apply. This seminar will take place at the Howl Happening Gallery Space at 6 East 1st Street, New York City, on December 19th at 2 p.m. Cultural workers and artists from all disciplines are welcomed. Uh, RSVP is requested, but walk-ins are totally fine, too. RSVP at howlarts.org. Okay, great. Well, um, I think we can move on to the art shows now. But we each had four shows that we wanted to talk about. 
These reviews are going to be a little bit shorter than our marathon session last time. Why don't we just kick off things with our with our hits? So I saw uh, two shows in fairly far flung places, at least as I as I would define them, and that was partially my reasoning for for doing that was I wanted to go and see some shows that would take a little bit more effort to go and see and might not get the attention that they deserve. So the first show I went to see was at uh, Trestle Gallery in Gowanus. It's called Tracing Trajectories. And that show was curated by Jesse Firestone and worked with a collection of James Wagner and Barry Hoggard. And the reason I went out to this particular exhibition is that James Wagner and Barry Hoggard are collectors who I think do a very good job of supporting those in the early stages of their careers. They were the first collectors to buy a piece of mine uh, as in my professional career as an artist. They bought my first work. And full disclosure, Barry Hoggard had, I worked for him for about two years when I started uh, AFC, and I did a lot of data entry for his uh, service, ArtCal, which was, I think, the first online art calendar. And if Barry listens to this, I would like to apologize to him for being such a poor employee for so many <laughs> years because I was not very good at data entry. But you know what? He and James really made a huge difference to my career, and that support was huge. And I'm one of, like, hundreds of artists for which that's true. So I really wanted to see what Jesse Firestone had done. So basically what he'd done is he chosen um, six artists from the collection of thousands and focused on work that generally had a political or social dimension to it. The show itself takes place on this second level of this building in, in Gowanus, and it's just outside of a studio space. The location is, I would describe it as fairly small, and but not intimate, <laughs> because <laughs> it's this like open space. But it actually seemed to suit... James and Barry's uh, collection very well because that one they and just their way of approaching things because it's you know it's right outside a studio space which is who they support kind of open in a way that I think they are they're kind of unusually open for for collectors and then the focus which was on political art was very true to both of them too James Wagner was an activist in his earlier days Barry and and him continue to be and the show itself is like medium agnostic we'll call it there's hanging collages a photograph of like a NASA rocket launch next to a photograph of like homemade satellites and Osama bin Laden nightlight a letter to Felix Gonzalez Torres like there's a bunch of different different works there but the point was to choose these six artists and they were Carlos Mata Hunter Reynolds, Joe Ovalman, Esperanza Mayorba. I think I've probably pronounced her name Mayorbre, wrong. Mayorbre, I think. I know Thank Esperanza. You. She's a great artist. Um, Jeffrey Hargrave and Heidi Shadler. Yeah, I mean, that's a really familiar lineup of artists. And when you mentioned that the curator, um, maybe you said this earlier uh, before the podcast, that had tried to use political art as a way to narrow down the selection. I just laughed at that because <laughs> yeah. James and Barry's collection is almost entire. I mean, there's so much political work in that collection that I would be hard pressed to use that as like a filter. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he said that for whatever reason, he managed to get the work down to 30. And from there, he did studio visits. And if he was interested in the work that they were doing now, because each artist got a work that was in the collection and a work that they were doing now included in the show, then they then his his interest in that work would would then determine whether they were in the show. You know, the show is kind of like, it's kind of a grab bag of stuff, but there's this uh, Joe Ovalman piece that's uh, 23 gay men. They're photographs, and they're all the same size, and it's running in this like little corridor kind of behind the, uh, the main part of the show. And these men are all wearing his father's Marine Corps uniform, and, you know, this is supposed to be a reference to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm. And uh, I think there's a there's something about the using this, this same uniform to kind of mask identity. Mm. But I really thought this is something that's, if you've been to their home, it's... Uh, it's like one of the first works you see in the house. Yeah, I've been to And <laughs> it's a really, really powerful piece. It's a little too bad that it's in this kind of alcove, but if you discover it, it's like the most, like it's just so nice to see that that piece. Yeah, just... I wish uh, James and Barry had like five times the amount of space they do have because their collection, I mean, it's incredible and it covers almost every square inch of wall space in their apartment. So you can spend hours and hours just looking, you know, through that collection. Well, and that is the, the thing that I would say about this show too, is that even though it's more uh, dispersed than what's in their actual home, it still felt like there was not quite enough space to really tell the story and when i talked to jesse firestone he immediately said the same thing it was like yes i wish there was more space because there's so much to be done with this collection yeah and that's going to be a really interesting question what uh james and barry decide to do with their collection you know um as they age so gracefully um <laughs> yes. and and i and it just reminds me in a, in a like a good piece of news that i heard that the courts have struck down uh uh, Trump's decision to try to uh, ban transgender people from military service, or at least uh, thrown a wrench into that, you know, so at least something positive came out of the news today. <laughs> it's great. So uh, the other one of the other shows I saw was uh, Five Miles at Five Miles Gallery in Crown Heights. Uh, so that was a Nicholas Cueva show. And Nicholas Cueva, I would describe him as a very active artist and curator within the Bushwick art scene. I think, William, you know. You yeah, know I've met Nicholas is. a few times over the years and know him through social media and kind of followed his, I guess, when he moved here from Chicago. So that's how long I've sort of known right. of Nicholas. And, and I was connected with him through one of the uh, former employees of Art F City. So, so I know him well. And, uh, so I went to check out the show. Uh, the show is a series of paintings, um, all on burlap. They're very large, semi-abstract still lifes and figurative work, roughly in the shape and size of door frames. So the entire gallery is painted gray, and these paintings are colorful and set against that color. Um, and behind, I'd say maybe 50%, maybe maybe more like 40% of the paintings is this kind of metallic fabric that he used to kind of set off the work so that it would pop off the gray. So he describes this work as being about past moments after they were transformed by time and the process of remembering it. 
to me, that's like you're painting from memory. So that's what that is. <laughs> so this <laughs> the the art fancy way of saying that. But the reason I was interested in this work was that when I first saw it, he had he was making these small paintings on burlap. I couldn't tell what they were, and now they have a greater level of gravitas, and they still look like they're progressing. But I think he's going somewhere with them. And the metallic use of the paintings didn't quite pan out for him in some cases. Like they often kind of look like they were wrapped in some some kind of plastic rather than like actually having this sheen that I think he wanted. But I still really was impressed by his willingness to, to really dig in and experiment with materials. So I think he's someone to to pay attention to and i can see william nodding his head <laughs> across yes, yes. So, <laughs> do you want to talk about a couple of yours yeah um you know this has been a busy couple of weeks i'm i'm working on a lot of stuff in the studio for a show in january and i just didn't quite have the energy to get out and see anything in any other neighborhoods besides bushwick where i live so on sunday uh during the the super rainy afternoon uh, i met up with artist and my sometimes collaborator jennifer dalton to see a few shows um and here's what i can really sort of recommend it um i think there were four shows that really stood out to me that i saw going to maybe 12 or 13 gallery shows uh the first one was um by an artist named Anita Thatcher. The show's called Ante Room, and it runs through December 3rd. So I, I was completely surprised by this, this carousel slide projection show, uh, which depicts a young woman in, and this is for Carolina, a kind of liminal space, where a seemingly banal still life with a painting and a chair becomes increasingly surreal as the slides progress, producing some really exquisite images against a kind of propulsive, if not world, music-y soundtrack. Uh, so I I, you know, I kind of wandered into the gallery completely um, ignorant of what I was going to go see. I didn't read anything. I just sat down for the slideshow in the dark. And I'm watching this woman and, uh, and listening to the music. And I'm thinking this works a bit nostalgic for the 80s, which turns out wasn't a terrible read. Thatcher, I learned uh, that the piece was from 1982 and had been shown previously at the Hirshhorn. And the soundtrack was actually by David Byrne. So this really, I was really looking at a piece from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and I also unfortunately learned that Thatcher had just passed away in September. I think the piece was compulsively watchable. I sat and took it all in for about 20 minutes. But I'm just like, it was such a curious experience. Like, why am I seeing a piece of an installation by an artist in Bushwick that had shown at the Hirshhorn? Um, that had been exhibited in museums in this kind of tiny microscope space in in Bushwick. Well, it was just a microscope kind of space is not that small. Though. It's a I long. Think I mean, it's, it's a, a pretty, big space. Pretty big space. When and I say, I guess small, I just don't understand. How do they have the money or the like? How how does that work? How do you have a space showing like a kind of a work that was kind of institutionally represented? Well, I mean, I guess that speaks. I mean, I hope anyway that that speaks to Microscope's ambitions, right? Like mm. maybe they're they're right beside Tiger Strikes Asteroids and uh, uh, what is it? Not transfer transmitter. Yeah, they're right and, next door. Right, and those are like artist-run galleries that are maybe a little bit different in terms of the way that they curate shows. But Microscope, I think, 
They're a straight up commercial gallery. Um, I guess so. So I guess that's why it was just a little strange to see one, an artist who's deceased showing work that's, you know, sort of, I mean, I had a previous life already. So the next show that I I saw with Jen, uh, we met up at 56 Bogart. And there was a lot of work at 56 Bogart, none of which I'm really going to recommend, um, <laughs> except the uh, Robert Henry had a very sort of handsome show by Sharon Lawless, and that runs through December 22nd. The, the show's largely sculpture and collage that really weird in a sort of very good way, like a kind of furry and Truett sci-fi thing going on. And the work was like really visually intriguing in a kind of low-tech Trumploy way that, that sort of like... I don't know if it's in dialogue with kind of post-internet art, but it's doing it with a lot of tactility and sort of visual pleasure with not the most kind of like technically advanced means. And then, unfortunately, the work was sort of priced in the tens of thousands of dollars, which kind of put it out of uh, Jen and I's price range. But I bring it up because like Jen sort of confessed on our, our tour that she really wanted to buy some art. And she couldn't really say why it was happening, but she just had this kind of like urge to like look at prices, inquire, and maybe try to buy some artwork on the, the walkthrough. Two other sort of oddly compatible shows that Jen and I saw on our sort of tour included Rachel Rawson's exhibition, Peak Performance, at Signal Gallery. Jen and I also walked into that gallery without so much looking as a single piece of like extra textual information about the artist or what we were looking at. And I thought we had walked through basically an excellent group show of young post-internet artists. You know, there were large-scale plexiglass sculptural paintings. Um, There were... Well, they weren't paintings, but they were melted plexiglasses that had images on the surface of those that sort of cast shadows all across the room. There were large-scale paintings uh, that looked kind of like drop-shadow abstract environs. And I think the kind of coolest objects in the room, which I use the word coolest loosely, were like fish tanks that I called like techno-aquariums. I mean, they had kind of keyboards and, uh, you know, computer fans floating in what looked like water, but was really just a conductive fluid um so it turns out it wasn't uh, a group show it was all by a single artist rachel who has previously been exhibited at postmasters i think we were in a group show together but you know it was an odd experience walking through the show jen whispered something kind of conspiratorially about the paintings just falling back and disappearing they were probably the least interesting of the three ways of working uh for rachel and and anyway it was a compelling exploration of kind of virtual environments in a few different medium and she made them super physical so i can recommend it i really enjoyed it and it was it's up through november 12th i was really interested in that show in part um largely because of the aquarium works because i think it was back in 2015 i saw some water-based works aquarium works uh in Baltimore, and there was an artist who had stuck what looked like a makeup box or something inside the aquarium, and mm. then on the corner of the the box was translucent. There was just this like single eyelash <laughs> on the corner, and it just was perfectly affixed. And it, I cannot explain why I found that so beautiful. There's something about that. I think maybe should have seemed grotesque, but I guess because it was encased in water, it felt like kind of far enough away that it, it didn't resemble a, a hairball at all. Mm. It really just seemed like this strange accessory. 
And since then, I've wanted to see more art in water. <laughs> and what was weird, too, was later that year. So I saw that in the summer of 2015. And then later that year at Satellite, there was another Baltimore-based artist that had displayed all of their paintings in the bathtub and filled the bathtub with water. So there were all these like floating paintings it was really beautiful, and the whole the whole thing was like an installation of what it might be like to to show work in a pool. So they had this projection thrown against the wall where there was this weird light wave. It seemed very post internety to me too. <laughs> I I mean, if there's one kind of stylistic trope that is associated with that movement it does seem to be an interest in water i hadn't seen so much of the water melting things things that kind of you can do in virtual environments i think i've seen more of the conductive liquid was a little different for me i felt like it was sort of taking vapor wave or whatever that kind of like aesthetic of glass and neon and light and you know um, and putting it together with like some kind of aquarium aesthetic uh which was uh, you know i mean it's really compelling on one level but i don't know it's you know i I'm, i imagine it's a particular challenge to maintain these pieces and keep them going much like keeping a fish or something you're gonna have to take care of this work where i think a lot of art traditionally that simulates water tends to end up being like aqua resin or something like i don't know is it ronnie horn who makes those pools that yes, look like water yeah. and but they're just trompe illusions right you don't have to deal with maintaining like i don't know fluid levels in your your fish tank i mean it's funny i keep thinking about like the fish tanks in chinatown where there's like one particular shop where you can go in and look at these really rare goldfish that sell for like twenty thousand dollars a piece and if you are somebody who is buying a goldfish for twenty thousand dollars you understand that that fish is not going to live forever but that's not really part of the deal when you buy art. Like, well, maybe it, maybe it sometimes is. It I is. mean, you know, the, the, the fish tank itself, the whole thing is the, the goldfish that might not last forever. <laughs> I mean, museums don't tend to like that that no. much. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's one of the functions of art to challenge its own material conditions. I guess, and I have to confess, I didn't get that far with like trying to attach any meaning to Rachel's work. I mean, I'm looking at, they were very cool. I mean, I was so sort of blown away stylistically by what they were doing that if there's deeper levels to it, I'm going to need a little bit more time to process it. And, And speaking of like just the attractiveness in some way of work, next door at Present Company, there's a two-person show with Jesse Rose Vala and then Myung, uh, Myung Soo Kim. The show's called Dusk to Dusk, and it's open through November 5th. Um, Vala's installation opens in a kind of darkened space uh, with a neon DNA strand that proves to be, you can't photograph it. It just it disappears, it blurs out, it's such an intense light, or when you try to focus on it, the rest of the painting disappears, like the color around it. So it's, it's kind of an oddly unphotographable thing. That uh, sounds great though yeah, that is like that's cool. a really nice challenge for like all of this instagram or yeah. this that... isn't and this isn't a show that definitely does not lend itself to instagram um but it's but a it... show that you have to see in person yes, or perhaps you do unfortunately um f- uh, maybe unfortunately for vala though it's sort of like she sets up a um an interesting sci-fi is what i feel like is sort of on display there's a, a video piece with like a digital hourglass with water maybe moving reverse through it and then there's a video that 
I'll be honest, Jen and I did not really spend too much time with because within that space, which is sort of dimly lit for the video projections, is you can kind of see the white, very brightly lit cube is sort of contained within the center of the gallery. And so you slide into Myung Su's installation. And this is just, how do I describe this? It's, it's a brightly lit cube filled with incredibly beautiful, like Finnish fetish, Haim Steinbachish arrangements of images and forms from nature arranged and built into incredibly well-crafted and beautiful cabinets, frames, and shelves. This work just turned on my connoisseurial impulse like immediately. I just, I looked at the work and whether it was Jen's suggestion that we are out looking, maybe she wants to buy some artwork, I immediately wanted to buy one of these pieces. I didn't even spend that long looking at it. I was like, my God, I want one. So I ran out and sort of asked the woman working at the desk there was a price list. And she was like, no, uh, there isn't. And if you want to know what the prices are, you would have to contact one of the gallery's like five director operators, which I was kind of bummed about because the work was deeply appealing. They were polished blocks of graphite. Um, there was a sort of a tiered shelf, and this is a very simple description, but like just like a moon, a rock, and a small abstract form. It's sort of like Richard Archswager meets Carol Bove uh, at the Natural History Museum. I mean, they're just really sexy. And then there was a kind of subtle humor um, in these kind of tiny fragments of text in polished bronze pieces. Bronze pieces. And um, it really, like, I, I think there was a kind of like poetic relationship between these sort of natural beauties of rainbows, crows, and wolves against these really finely crafted uh, objects that, I mean, they were the nicest things I've ever seen in Bushwick. Just the nicest looking wow. things I've ever seen in Bushwick. I've never seen things so nice. And it just, if you compared Myung Soo Kim's work with Rachel Rawson's work next door, Rachel Rawson's work starts to look kind of shabby. I mean, it's amazing that somehow this this wood with a little bit of bronze and polished graphite achieves a kind of like super polish. I don't know. You know, I had like, it, it, I want one of these works like, you know, so badly it makes me question my own artistic worldview. Yeah. Like, <laughs> conceptual craft or like a conceptual materialism. I'm so, I, I feel guilty about how much I liked this work. Um, and, and again, it's okay to want things. I, no, I don't know. No, you know, it like pushes against all my impulses as, a, as an artist, you know, um, and, and now I'm, I'm sort of loath to find out how much they actually cost and whether or not I can, as, as Austin Thomas says, like real artists buy art, you know? I kind of want to feel like a real artist in this case and buy some art. Austin Thomas says real artists... Real artists buy art. Okay, just, say, just so everybody knows, <laughs> Austin Thomas is an artist who has... Um, for many years, run her own gallery in various different forms. Yeah. So she is an expert on artists and I guess also getting people to buy things. Well, it worked for a while until it didn't. <laughs> well, she now runs an apartment gallery. Yes. So she's, yes. she's still at it. She's still, for sure. It seems like you're saying there's a sci-fi element to some of this stuff. And I think in both of the shows, the, the common thread between Kim's and Vala's work does seem to be a, some kind of commentary about the natural world that juxtaposes rocks with an image of the moon. I mean, there's a concern with instances in nature, whether it's like the appearance of a rainbow, but there's no fiction to it. It's mostly just a 
arrangement and juxtaposition of natural images versus these like finely crafted geometric forms or something. So I, you know, I, it's it's a tough it's tough for me to make an immediate connection between both artists' concerns. Right. I mean, I guess the reason I brought it up was that I feel like I've seen a lot of work recently. Well, maybe not a lot, but let me rephrase this. Mm. When I went out to see work in the Lower East Side yesterday, I went to uh, Denny Gallery and Derek Keller. I mean, a bunch of others. But these two galleries both were showing artists who had sci-fi aesthetic of some sort or inspired by science fiction without necessarily incorporating the element of narrative fiction. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Denny Gallery, they were showing a collaborative called Future Retrieval. Permanent Spectacle was the name of the show, and that's up through November 12th. And Guy Michael Davis and Katie Parker are the creative duo there, and they reimagine historical events and landscapes as fantastical worlds filled with artifacts. And that seemed like something that we're starting to see a little bit more of. Maybe it's less that we're seeing more of this, but more this is sort of the way that people are describing objects that are being made as artifacts. But that's something their show is primarily a giant diorama in a sort of semicircle that takes up most of the gallery. Katie Parker had made uh, some wallpaper from a residency that she had done at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. So she found this wallpaper. It's like landscapey stuff. It has like some Asian elements, but I think that primarily like it, it kind of looks maybe it has Asian elements now because like she's removed all the colonial figures from it. So this is like this new world that has been overtaken by tigers and mm. the wilderness has just kind of taken over everything. Yeah, I mean, alternative, al- al- alternate histories, uh, alternate futures are sort of like a staple of science fiction narratives. You know, if you go back into the past and change one thing, like let's remove colonial presences and see what that world looks like without uh, the intervention of, say, European colonialists or imperialists so that maybe that's a connection to the work I mean when I first saw it I thought it looked a little um, had some questions about who who's authoring this work I guess based on uh, its references but um, you've explained that <laughs> right so I mean just the level of craft that I think they both bring to the there uh, there's the diorama but then they also make these ceramics that have are made through like 3d uh, scans that um, Davis took while he was at his little Museum of Natural History residency. So they're just really, really good with ceramics. So, and then at Derek Eller, um, I saw a show by somebody whose name is actually Whiting Tennis. Whiting Tennis, that's one of the best artist names I think I've ever heard. It's up there with Baker Overstreet. <laughs> I was Our not aware of that. Rubies, yes. <laughs> In any event, so that shows up through November 12th, and that was, basically that show was a series of automatic uh, drawings that uh, had been made using the French Surrealist uh, technique, but he calls them sketch pad as Ouija board drawings. I mean, they're basically just like automatic drawings, but they end up looking like abstracted animals in architecture. It's a whole show of these drawings and paintings, and there's a real kind of modernist look to them the strongest piece is a collage that kind of looks like a 
elephant-shaped building made of wood, and it's called the Vegetarian. And it's this sort of smaller work amongst much larger works that I think maybe could easily be categorized as almost too familiar. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't seen the show, but um, I did sneak a look at some of the photos of the show on your phone. I think the reproductions basically tell the story. Yeah, I mean, they looked, you know, the word artifact comes to mind, like modernist artifacts. And they're, I hate to say it, but there's a kind of primitivism to, you know, some of the borrowing that looks like that's happening within those, that they could be artifacts from other cultures um, that actually had some sort of actual function before they were formalized. Right. But that the collage that you showed me was a very different piece. I mean, that feels much more surrealist than I would say the kind of like early modern work that seemed to be on the pedestals in the sculptures. And then there was one image of a kind of salon style wall of those maybe automatic drawings. And it just threw me back to like the Brooklyn Rail office. It looked like, you know, Fong's collection of modern art, you know. Well, you know, it's funny because so the reason that I really like the collage that I described as an elephant-like shaped building made of wood was that within this collage, it looked like this building was somehow filled with secrets. Like Mm. it looked like you could kind of open drawers or something and like get inside this thing. And when you can't fully unpack a work on site, it's automatically more engaging and because that work had such a, a strong formal connection to the salon wall, which was backed by this single sheet of plywood, all of those other works, for me anyway, seemed imbued with this kind of secret that I needed to unlock. So like the material relationship created a narrative that at least that I visually could follow and conceptually it was it was enough for me yeah I would say you know it the the collages by Sharon Lawless um, had an aspect of like a secret or a mystery or a purpose that defied easy interpretation work that I want to I could spend a lot more time with and Myung Soo Kim's work there is a narrative built into that work it's not immediate it doesn't jump out but it involves a kind of worldview of looking at the natural world in a kind of almost twilight. Nothing is particularly bright within the work. Um, there's a kind of melancholy to it that just, you know, it really sl- like stopped me in my tracks. I mean, there was something so, and speaking of artifacts, it kind of made sense. There, there was a quality of like these little artifacts from some other world that had been placed with images of the natural world. And it was a really compelling thing that, I, you know, with none of these shows, I feel like I got to spend enough time to really like process all of the possible meanings or take away from it. But it's, it's just one of the first times, uh, even in Bushwick, where there were a number of shows where I really, I, I would have liked to have owned one of the works, you know? And that's an odd, I don't usually feel that when I'm out looking at work, uh, whether it's in Chelsea or Lower East Side or Bushwick. And, and I don't know if that has to do with the kind of like status of these works having like a quality of an artifact, whether it's from a future or a kind of alternative present. Yeah, there's, there's something to that. I don't know. I mean, I actually have started thinking about like, would I like to, to own X art or Y piece? Because I do feel like it can be a helpful measure of, or at least an impetus to figure out why 
I like something. Absolutely. And what and the criteria is. Thinking for... about the show that you reviewed at Trussell of James and Barry's collection, how the way they collect and the way they support artists and the way they kind of buy work early and that their work has a kind of worldview about how they see politics, how they see sexuality, how they see identity is built into the collection and the work they've chosen. And I don't have that in my life as an artist. I make things and then I try to get rid of them. I don't have a great collection of work and I don't have the money necessarily to do it. And so there, there is that, like, there was that sort of disappointment when we look at the Sharon Lawless price list and it's like $12,000, you know, it's like out of reach for Gemini. Well, I mean, I'm sure that pretty much anything at like, um, you know, Denny Gallery or Derek Eller would be out of my price range too. It's funny because I had, uh, in the uh, Denny Gallery show at the Future Retrieval show, there was a wildly kind of almost tackily painted ceramic of a saber-toothed tiger. And I just, I thought it was so beautiful. And anyway, the director had told me that the piece was sold and immediately I was kind of crestfallen, like, oh no, I could never afford that work. Like, why was I so (laughs) upset? No reason. But, you know, the same is true at Derek Eller, like Whiting Tennis, that there's no way I, I could have that work. But I will say that one of the things that did kind of appeal to me with the modernist um, aesthetic was that, like, built into a modernist aesthetic is this belief in progress that, like, we no longer have, and well, I want it you back. Know I, I, you're right, and I think this is maybe a good spot not we could end on this note to some degree. But do you know the writer Bruno Latour? No. So he was a kind of, I think, and I could be wrong about this, but he's, he's a theorist. I believe he's, he might be French. But he was one of the postmodern theorists associated with the kind of like postmodern skepticism of truth or certainty or kinds of authority that have too much power. And so a lot of his early writings were his theories were about kind of questioning ideas of truth or notions of truth. And after 9-11 and the kind of like subsequent decade and a half or more, Latour has become a kind of like, uh, he wants us to, quote, believe in science again. And he wants people to agree that there are matters of concern and things that are truth-like. He seems to be on a kind of mission to get people to stop believing in fake news or to trust that there are things to have trust in ideas and not looking for like universal truths or essences or things like that, but really agreeing that there are things that we do have to take seriously as being true and that could restore a sense of progress in the world and not just a kind of constant crippling doubt about everything. I don't know. So Latour has been publishing and writing about this and I want to read more of it. I haven't read anything since um, I think he had an essay called Matters of Concern. Well, I think we need to start a book club. Yes. This, this is the moral that, of this, that the, the take-home from this, essay, also, this episode. Uh, you know, it, novel ways of buying artwork or ways artists can get together to try to, like, trade or start to acquire art and trade their art so they can build some, like, value down the road. Well, I think this is a whole another ep- <laughs> uh, episode. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Look forward to our show next week where we will be discussing new business models for the art world, including Kickstarter's new platform called Drip. 